When the Soviet Union fell in 1991, hundreds of tons of nuclear materials were suddenly unsecured. The new, fragile Russian government had no ability or desire to claim facilities in formerly Soviet states like Georgia and Kazakhstan, and it could no longer pay nuclear plant workers. Operatives from Iran, Iraq, Libya, and North Korea offered cash to purchase uranium and hire nuclear physicists. If not for the urgent action of a handful of American diplomats and their foreign partners, a rogue state or terrorist group could have acquired a nuclear weapon. Today's interviewee understood that danger better than anybody. As his DARPA biography outlines, Andy Weber spent 30 years in the U.S. government, including more than five years as President Obama's Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs. He led efforts to remove weapons-grade uranium from Kazakhstan and Georgia and nuclear-capable MiG-29 aircraft from Moldova, to reduce biological weapons threats, and to destroy Libyan and Syrian chemical weapons stockpiles. In addition, he has coordinated U.S. leadership of the international Ebola response for the Department of State. I would love to start kind of broadly looking at your work on Nunn-Luger. I'd love if you could explain for our readers the intelligence streams you guys were dealing with. I'm assuming there are lots of false positives. What did that look like from your vantage point and how do you make sense of information? Well, we had access to all source intelligence, ranging from signals intelligence to human intelligence, open source intelligence. And then there was another form of intelligence that I called GoInt or AskInt. And, and that's when you get on the plane and you go to the, the site or the government or visit the facility, talk to the scientists. And in fact, after the Soviet Union collapsed, that was our best source of information, just being on the ground. The Nunn-Luger Cooperative Threat Reduction Program gave us a reason to be there, and we were working together. And the amount of intelligence, but non-espionage intelligence that we were able to gather uh, in the course of our business was truly extraordinary. From a bureaucratic perspective, how do you process all that information? Did you wake up and get a briefing? So depending on the level I was serving at, usually when I was at the Pentagon, we would get our morning take of intelligence. We would read it. When I was more senior, when I served at the Assistant Secretary of Defense level, I actually had a briefer assigned to me who would come in several times a week with the analysts who, who wrote some of the more in-depth reports to brief me on different intelligence topics. But I was an avid uh, consumer of, of intelligence. I read the so-called raw intelligence, the signals intelligence reports, the CIA human reports. And you put it all together, it gave you a good picture. And there were times when specific intelligence led us to action, that we we acted on it. And, and I mean, some of the projects I was involved in originally were based on very sensitive intelligence. How do you feel your intuition or, or kind of intuitive feel for what to act on changed over time or through experience? 
Well, I think I had a lot of interaction with individuals that gave me a good sense of who was telling me the truth and, you know, who was just blowing smoke. The ability to size up people and, and, and to know whether or not to trust them, I thought was a, an invaluable skill. In terms of reading the intelligence, you learn to evaluate the, the sourcing. Usually on human intelligence, there's a source description that describes not just the reliability of the source, but the, the chain in which he received the information, whether it was information that he had direct access to or whether he was talking to third parties or, you know, so more indirect. So understanding that was very important. I think there's a tendency to overvalue things based on the classification. Just because something is classified top secret doesn't mean it's true or correct. Especially in crisis situations, you are just flooded with information. And a lot of it's bad information because in a crisis, the, the collection is amplified and Anybody who thinks they have something to add will send in a report and uh, the, the quality filter is lower. But when I served as Assistant Secretary of Defense, I had a fantastic relationship with my briefers from CIA who were assigned to me and, and also NSA. And I did something that, that not all policymakers do. Oftentimes I would go out to them and see them on their turf, mm. whether it was in, you know, up at Fort Meade or at, at, at Langley or down in Charlottesville, where we had a group that was focused on weapons of mass destruction issues. And I got to know them too. I think it was really important to have a, a relationship as a good consumer, have a relationship with your intelligence analysts. What did what did that do for your ability to assess the information that somebody wouldn't have in a more formal or structured relationship? I just learned so much. They, the amount of expertise, I mean, everything these people know is not written down. So much of it is in their heads because an intelligence analyst has the luxury of spending all of their time narrowly focus on one thing so they read everything imaginable about it and and what is in their heads and although they're trained not to give policy recommendations they can certainly help define options and allow policymakers to to bounce ideas off of them i, I want to go to a specific case that i know you've talked about elsewhere and is kind of publicly known the uranium in kazakhstan in that case i know you've talked about getting receiving a tip that there was uranium sitting at a warehouse somewhere. Can you talk about that? I'm curious, particularly about the kind of information, the passage of information, how you how you confirmed that. It was a, a process of, of, of quite a few months. Slava was my car mechanic, sort of a fixer kind of person, occasional driver. He asked me one day if I'd be interested in buying some uranium. He hadn't, and, he hadn't suggested this kind of transaction before. No, no. And this was at a time, you know, the Soviet Union had collapsed. There were all kinds of scams, crazy stories. Most of them didn't check out. 
But I told him that I would be interested in learning more about it. Just to go back to that, were there other scams or stories at the time that you followed up on that turned out to be false positives? I can't think of a specific case that I was directly involved in, but there were all kinds of rumors about suitcase nuclear weapons. And oftentimes there would be on sort of the black market, they would offer for sale actual you know, plutonium or highly enriched uranium, or they would say it was highly enriched uranium, but very small quantities, you know, much less than gram quantities. And, and they would say that this is just a sample, but there's much more behind it if you're interested. And we would actually observe these schemes through signals intelligence and other intelligence when they were targeting countries like Libya and Iran, who they knew were interested in buying these things. Or the profiles of the folks doing the selling? Was it people who had access to facilities? Sometimes. In, in the specific case of, of Project Sapphire, my initial discussion with Slava led to an introduction with the director of the factory in East Kazakhstan. He was a director of the factory his name was Vitaly. And so he had obviously direct access and knowledge of everything that was going on at his factory. But it took me many months and a lot of developing personal rapport and trust with him uh, before I got any detailed or, or usable information about potentially uranium at his facility. What did that months long process look like? Were you taking him to dinner? Well, there's a lot of dinners, a lot of vodka. Once I made the mistake of giving him a gift of a bottle of wild turkey during one of my visits up north his apartment. And he proceeded to say thank you and opened it and said, okay, we'll now drink this together. <laughs> but the, the time I remember best, after a meeting, we talked about hunting. He knew I was a hunter. And it was maybe late October he said, why don't you come up? I'll take you hunting. And I said, sure. And one weekend I, I went up there and went on a hunting trip with him. And that was a real important opportunity in, in the, the eventual uncovering of, of information about what was at his factory. You know, we did at the base camp, we did naked banya with with him and and his hunting guide friends and i remember it was first snow early in the morning when we went on the hunt and we actually i i shot a moose on that trip and there was a, a a knb lieutenant colonel who fell asleep in his jeep <laughs> he was trying to stay warm and he woke up and there was an elk that had walked right past the Jeep and he pulled out his nine millimeter Makarov pistol and shot the elk. A lot of drinking and, and you know, and, and the banya, salted fish, dried fish and, and vodka. So we, we really bonded, but he didn't tell me any specifics about the uranium. Over time, I pressed him and I said, look, the United States government maybe would be interested in purchasing this, but we need to know details, you know, what's the enrichment level, 
because we knew his plant was producing uh, low enriched uranium fuel pellets. But over time, I, I pressed him, and then this is something that, that I play over in my head like a video. I remember it as if it was yesterday. Slava came one afternoon to the U.S. Embassy where I was working, which is in the old capital of, of Almaty, Kazakhstan. It's now moved up north to Astana. Right. And he said, Andy, somebody wants to meet you. I said, okay, sure. And so I, I left the embassy and hopped in his Soviet vintage military jeep called the Wazik. And we, he drove me to the outskirts of town. And there's a small company called Bars, which means Snow Leopard. And they were selling night vision goggles, basically military equipment to sportsmen, to hunters. I, I went up into this apartment building where they had their office. And Colonel Korbater, who was a former KGB border guard colonel, we, we were all talking, a bunch of guys. And then he said, Andy, let's take a walk. And I remember it was snowing that day. And so we went out into the courtyard and started walking around. And he, he said, Andy, I have a message for you from Vitaly, Vitaly Mete, the factory director. We were walking and he, he discreetly passed me a, a very small piece of paper folded in half. And I took it out of his hand and I kept walking and I, I looked at, at it. And I gulped and put it back in my pocket. And it said 600 kg, U235, 90%. So that's weapons grade, highly enriched uranium, weapons usable, enrichment level. And 600 kilograms is enough for you know, perhaps several dozen your weapons and i was just sure. absolutely shocked because our intelligence did didn't uh indicate that there was any heu at this factory this was very very alarming to me can i have you say a little bit more on that what was the nature of the intelligence that or, or why was it wrong what was the discrepancy it, it wasn't wrong it, it just they didn't know that there was HEU at this facility. So, so there was a lot of skepticism when I reported that back to Washington. Did you believe then, it right off the bat? I did. And honestly, I I took a risk in believing it, but it was it was because I trusted Vitaly by then and I got to size him up, know him pretty well. And he seemed like a straight shooter to me. So I reported that back to Washington and then this led to an effort on my part to try to, with guidance from Washington, to try to move this from a, what, what had the feel of a black market deal into a, a secret government to government channel. And so I was able to do that over, over time and then President Clinton invited President to visit Washington 
and I participated in, in that visit. And we had a private meeting in Blair House in the president's bedroom where he was staying in Blair House and discussed this. And, and one of the requests we made to President Nazarbayev was if he could arrange for me and a technical expert to visit this facility and verify that this highly enriched uranium was there. And he agreed. He turned to his to a general who at the time was chairman of the KMB and he said, make this happen. And so in March of 1994, Washington sent a technical expert named Elwood Gift from Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Would you have been able to access this site without a formal channel to the Kazakh government? Or did you have to take it to that level to keep moving forward? Well, on my hunting trip, Mette arranged for his staff to give me a a windshield tour of the plant before my flight back to Almaty. But just looking at buildings, you know, I couldn't really learn anything. I I think probably it would have been very, very hard. This was probably one of the biggest secrets that the government of Kazakhstan had. And, and it would have been very hard to have verified the quantity and quality of the uranium without cooperating with the government. So aside from... So, diplomatically it being important to do it government to government it was also on a practical level it made it feasible for you yeah i mean it's only in the movies that somebody would break into a facility and take sure. samples that just doesn't happen sure. and but we still did it secretly because that's how they wanted to do it but also because we felt that the best security of this at-risk material was the fact that very few people knew it was there. And so we were escorted, Elwood and I, by a lieutenant colonel from the KMB who flew with us in, in an Antonov 12, which is a small turboprop, up to Uskmanogorsk. We we had dinner with Vitaly and, and his team. And then the next day, we spent the whole day going through the factory and, and he showed us the the warehouse like area where the HEU was. It was protected by by a good padlock is what we reported back to Washington. It was like one of those Civil War antique sure. shop era yeah. uh, padlocks. And a female guard armed with a Makarov pistol. And so uh, Vitaly Mete had the key brought, the padlock, some seals, and then we entered the, this this large room with a platform on the floor. It was sort of plywood on cinder blocks kind of situation. Okay. And there were different sizes and shapes of stainless steel buckets spread out, intentionally spread out sure. for criticality safety on this platform. 
and we randomly took samples from different buckets. We say we want to open that one, and and they were very cooperative. We were able to take some samples that that I had sent back to Washington, but we also did assays on site, so we were able to verify the quantity of material and and the enrichment level on site, and then further analysis was done when the the samples were shipped back to to Washington to laboratories in the United States. Let me let me back you up. I guess up to this point, you and the folks in Washington didn't know for sure that this was confirmed. So what did your interactions with Washington to get a meeting with the Kazakh president and our president, given that you didn't have full clarity? Well, I, I was a young man then. I was 33 years old. I worked for an extraordinarily talented ambassador, William Courtney, Bill Courtney. And we were in constant communication about this, and he was very supportive. So I was lucky in that respect. Together, frankly, we went out on a limb with this whole concept of even considering that the U.S. government would purchase this material, because this is something we had never done. It seemed like the right approach to us, but it took Washington a while to make that decision. In fact, there was a lot of opposition to bringing foreign origin enriched uranium into the United States. Where'd that opposition come from? Mostly from the Department of Energy and the Secretary of Energy. On on the grounds that it was a risk or a bad precedent? There were a lot of reasons. I think the, the main argument against was that we would somehow create a market for this type of material. But like my feeling was... Kidnappings or... Yeah, but my feeling was... Boy, if there are people selling this, we want them to come to the United States government first. We would like to be the buyer first resort. Exactly. The interactions between you and the ambassador and DOE look like? So it's it's mostly in restricted cable traffic back and forth with the State Department, Defense Department, CIA, and Department of Energy. There were NSC meetings held on this. Once that verification went back to Washington and the ambassador's cable said, and it's protected by a good padlock, and that set off alarms in Washington. And that, you know, so that was in in early March of 1994. And it, it took many, many months before we actually had a team come to Kazakhstan to package the material and secretly ship it back to the United States. That didn't happen. They arrived in October and then left right before Thanksgiving in, in November. What would have happened to your career if it was a bust or a false alarm? Would it, how, how big of a deal would that have been? I mean, I, I could have recovered, but it certainly would have caused reputational damage. I guess to, to, to stay with this a little longer, how did you balance the kind of the time and investment it took to, to build relationships that work with, you know, a, a sense of urgency in a uncertain environment? What, what was the, what was the calculus like? Yeah. I mean, I thought this was probably the, the potentially the most important issue in Kazakhstan. 
at the time. They had inherited on their territory well over a thousand nuclear warheads. Those were still on military bases under Russian control. There was the world's biggest biological weapons factory was located in Kazakhstan. And they were actually at a reactor site on the Caspian Sea. There were, we learned later, three tons of plutonium in spent fuel from a fast breeder reactor that led to a multi-year, over a decade project to secure, package that material and move it by rail across the country to a site in semi-polytense Kazakhstan for more secure dry storage. I know I keep pulling you away from the main thread of this story, but where did the uranium end up? So we packaged it in Department of Transportation approved containers for transporting fissile material and flew it back on C-5 Galaxy, a military cargo aircraft. It was at the time the longest C-5 flights ever. It was flown back with, I think, three, perhaps four aerial refuelings en route. So the planes didn't land in Europe, or they just went all the way straight back to the United States over water. And they landed at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware and were met by a secure ground transport convoy. And the material was taken to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to the Y-12 plant. And there it was secured. Once it was behind the fence, there were press conferences in Almaty and at the Pentagon in Washington announcing the, the successful partnership between our governments. And the material was eventually blended down to low enriched uranium and you know, used for the nuclear power industry. So that, that power got turned into American consumer you know, cheap electricity? Yeah, I don't know how cheap, but sure, <laughs> exactly. So I think they called it. Oh, there was a catchphrase for the the bigger HEU purchase agreement. It was uh, like megatons to kilowatts or something like that. Megawatts. You talked about building personal relationships with Russians in other contexts, and it seems like this has been a key theme. I'm curious, generally, your lesson about the value and the skill of building personal relationships in these environments? Well, individuals matter. I mean, that, that's my main takeaway. And, you know, people matter. History doesn't just happen. It's true, maybe in a slightly different way, of your colleagues in, in the government. I mean, everything the government does, and I've been sort of held up as the example for this project, but there was a massive team involved in this. So everything you do in government perhaps unlike academia, is a team sport. And one piece of advice I give to young people starting out in, in government service is I just say lunch. Don't sit at your desk and have lunch. Spend time getting to know the people that you have to work with. And then 
that's how you get stuff done by having that network. I mean, my whole career really was about networking, whether it was in my overseas interactions or, or back in Washington inside the Pentagon and with the interagency. In the interagency, and you've been at both state and DOD, what have the what have the pain points been in doing this kinds of work? Not obviously two very different institutions. Oh well, the pain points for me have always been my sense of urgency versus the bureaucratic pace. I mean, things are complicated. It always takes longer than you'd expect. Can you imagine? So I learned about this HEU in Kazakhstan in, in December, right? The fact that it was 600 kilograms yeah. of highly enriched uranium. And it wasn't until October that the team and the packaging materials arrived in Kazakhstan. And it was very frustrating the slowness, it, you know, it was a big, complicated operation. It required training and, and you know, a lot of specialized preparation. But that was always frustrating to me was how slow things worked in the bureaucracy. But when there was focus and, and high-level leadership, and, and in this case, Bill Perry was Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter was Assistant Secretary of Defense, and Jeff Starr was a senior advisor to them who worked on this full time. And he drove it. I mean, they really drove Washington to make this happen. And it takes that, sometimes it takes that high level push to really unblock the bureaucracy. What's the source of that kind of slowness as you understand it? Because presumably people in those bureaucratic positions don't disagree that this is an important thing to do. It's, it's process, it's decision-making, it's overthinking things, you know, countless NSC meetings on so many topics, the project to remove and destroy serious chemical weapons is a good example of that. But at the end of the day, we made it happen. I think one thing, I have a reputation for is not letting go of issues that, that I care about. I get very passionate and almost obsessed. And, and I, <laughs> I don't know if, if that's always good, but it certainly in this, what you're calling entrepreneurial policy making and government. In fact, I love that word because I remember together with a colleague from the National Security Council staff, and from the State Department, we were briefing on a program that we had successfully interdicted Iran's attempts to gain access to pathogens, technologies, and, and expertise. Scientists at a, a bioweapons institute in Siberia called the Vector Research Center for Virology. And you know, this was we learned about it from very sensitive signals intelligence. And the normal thing at the time in a situation like that would be to, to dumb down the intelligence and demarch the government of Russia and ask them to do something about it. We call them demarshmallows. But that's not good because you risk compromising intelligence and, 
at that time, the Moscow was not very much in control of things around the country. It was a very weak government. So anyhow, so we briefed the, the WMD commission on how we had successfully interdicted this Iranian attempt to exploit the Vector Laboratory. And on the commission asked, well, what is it about this? We've been briefed on 99 government programs that aren't working. What is it about this one that's working? Congressman McCurdy from Oklahoma answered, what you have here, by definition, you can't institutionalize. What you have here is entrepreneurs in government who are making this happen almost in spite of the system. So there's not like some formula here that can scale up. And but, I'd never thought about it that way, but but I think it was really true. It seems like by the nature of your work, where it's a, a bunch of individual cases, the, the lessons are, are kind of limited for more bureaucratic and more process-oriented parts of the U.S. government. Does that sound right? Or maybe another way of putting this, what are the takeaways if you were in a less critical or urgent? Sure. State so I've been on all sides of this. I, I served in the bureaucracy at a senior level sure. towards the end of my career as an assistant secretary of defense. I think the it's it's picking those two or three priorities and sticking with them, no matter what it is. Because of the time and difficulty of getting things done, you need to focus. I, I used to tell people that I, I had the luxury of focus. I, I only had to work on three things, nuclear, chemical, and biological. And, and so knowing what's important to you, what's not, a good use of your time. I, I think that's really, really critical. I do want to go back to the, the Kazakhstan case. And you spent a while building these personal relationships that helped secure this in this material. During that process, did you think I'm moving too slowly? Did you think I needed to just push it? How, how do you how do you make the judgment calls there about taking your time to build those relationships? I well, it, for me, it was the subject matter that that made it important. You can't you can't spread yourself too thin. In the case of Vitaly Mente who's since passed away. He lived over a thousand kilometers away, so I didn't have a lot of opportunities to spend time with him, which is why the hunting trip was so important because it was that like compressed weekend together, you know, hours upon hours at a time. But I, I think, yeah, it's so important. The other thing, another sort of general lesson is follow up on what you say you're gonna do, right? I mean, it's a basic thing in any any walk of life. But if you if you tell somebody you're going to do something, whether it's a foreign counterpart or a colleague, do it. And, and that's a really important way to build confidence.
Andy, I think that's all the questions I have. I mean, I didn't finish the Iran thing. Oh, um, sure. Yes, please. But we actually, we actually went to the site and and negotiated with the director and said, if you break off your relationship with Iran, these are bad actors. They're seeking biological weapons capabilities from you. Right. If you agree to break off your relationship with Iran, we will work with you. We will fund joint research, peaceful research with your scientists. We will help improve security of your pathogen collection. It's one of the two places in the world that has a WHO authorized repository of smallpox or variola virus. The other one is CDC in Atlanta. It was hard. I mean, but we went to the source of the problem. We didn't go to some Ministry of Foreign Affairs office in Moscow, but we went out to Siberia and sat down with him. And he cared mostly about the people on his staff and, and being able to pay them. And, and so we were able for about $3 million in, in assistance to win his agreement to break off contact with the Iranians. And we were able to verify that with intelligence. So that it worked, but it was, it was creative and different and not something that had been done before. In that case where you knew he was already in contact with another potential buyer, were you more worried about him going to them and saying, Hey, I've been offered X amount. Can you match or beat it? No, it was another director. His name was Lev Sandakchev, and, and I had gotten to know him very, very well. He had visited the United States when we first met, and then I had made multiple trips to his facility in Siberia and met him in Moscow a few times. So I, I knew him pretty well. That wasn't my concern, but it was it was a courageous thing for him to do. And, and, and there are a lot of spineless people, you know, in, in that system, because to survive, you kind of have to not take risks, but it was going against his government policy because they were encouraging his work with the Iranians. Mm. And, you know, Russia had a good relationship with Iran still does. Sure. But he, he did what was in the best interests of his institute and, and the people that depended on him. And I, I had also come to, to trust him. And, and, you know, I learned a lot from him about the, the Russian or the Soviet biological weapons program. Sure. I guess you're, you're prompting a couple more questions, which are today. Where where is the kind of the U.S.'s capability to secure chemical and biological nuclear risks like this relative to when you started? What's what's changed? Well, we made huge progress destroying things. Sure. You know, Russia had a forty thousand ton arsenal of chemical weapons that we helped them destroy under OPCW supervision, but. And we did a lot of work to secure their, their nuclear warheads and their, their facilities that had fissile material. But I worry those relationships bro were broken off by Putin in 2012. And so we don't have the insights that we had from that on the ground presence and yeah. constant interaction. 
can imagine a situation. You know, if Prigozhin had been successful or had hadn't <laughs> turned away from Moscow, I mean, it's entirely possible that Russia might have another collapse. Her government might split. There could even be a violent conflict. And we still have thousands of nuclear warheads that would be at risk. So while the, the tool set that we developed during the Nunn-Luger programs worked at that time, and we applied them in Syria to destroy the chemical weapons stockpile there, in a violent situation, North Korea is another hard case that has a huge amount of materials and sure. weapons and expertise. So while we had that tool, so it's not going to be the same thing. It might be less cooperative. Are there tools you'd like to see from an American policy side added to the toolkit? Well, I, I think we, maybe? we need to maintain, exercise, and develop the capabilities to destroy weapons of mass destruction. The United States finally, this is a program I was involved in, finally just a few weeks ago, destroyed the last of its Cold War arsenal of chemical weapons mm -hmm. in a multi-billion, multi-year effort. But we need to maintain that capability, that technical expertise for destroying chemical weapons because of North Korea and, and other other you know potential opportunities in the future. So it's worth investing. With Syria, we invested money in developing a transportable neutralization capability called the Field Deployable Hydrolysis System that was built into shipping containers. And we were prepared to waste money. We, we, we didn't know that if they would ever be used, but we have to have the skills and the technical capabilities available for dealing with loose nuclear materials or chemical weapons or biological weapons. Are there concrete steps that we should be taking to kind of maintain those capabilities that you don't see occurring? Well, it's maintaining the funding. You know, the, the Port and Luger program every year, the Pentagon tries to cut it. Congress rarely tries to cut it, but the, the Pentagon itself, because you're competing against aircraft carriers and joint strike fighters, and this whole idea of a prevention program isn't classical war fighting. So we, we need to support programs like the ongoing cooperative threat reduction program of the Department of Defense. Sure. I guess maybe this is this is my last question, but I guess it's a more more personal one. I mean, what you're saying about prevention. You've built a career on, you know, preventing things from happening. Is that a more difficult sell generally in Washington? Is it harder to convince people that it's worth it to do work that doesn't have the the positive outcome? It's yeah, I think so. I think so, because you can't prove a negative. And, you know, we're always seized by metrics and yeah. program metrics and 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 in prevention work, there's really only one metric that matters at the end of the day, and that's the one time you fail to prevent something. 